Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm Lisa, your host, and this podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. You've got to hear about this great conference that PR Daily is doing May 11th in New York City. Uh, It's the Media Relations and Measurement Conference, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to be hosting a couple of panels. We're going to talk about what's happening, what's landing in the newsroom, what's, you know, what's making it in the the paper, all that cool stuff. So find more information about this great conference May 11th in person, yay, uh, online at prdaily.com or hit me up at lisa at fridayreporter.com. Thanks, guys. Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Axios April. Today's guest is hard at work in uh, New Mexico, Russell Contreras, who is the justice and race reporter, as well as the co-author for Axios Latino, is here with me today. Russell, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, and, and Russ, I was hoping maybe you could tell me a little bit about, you've got such a, um, your background is, is terrific. And, and right now it's it's especially timely and important and really part of the everyday conversation that we're having. But you have really been working at this beat in this, in this, um, in this area for some time. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got started. Well, I started off way back into the 90s when I was a college student writing for my student newspaper at the University of Houston. And after graduating, I entered a PhD program in history uh, where I planned to be a history scholar mm. um, and eventually would teach at elementary schools writing. But in that process, I, I was right, I still was interested in journalism. And I noticed real quick that it, when I entered, um, positions or jobs when I was freelancing, I had a knack for finding stories that nobody else was covering, simply because in Houston, Texas at the time, there were only a handful of Hispanic reporters or Mexican-American reporters. Mm. And so wherever I went, looking in those communities and those stories, the stories were right there, left uncovered. Wow. So I felt it very quickly in a, in, in a, when I was writing for the Houston Press, or the, the formal Houston Post. These were stories that I could do right here automatically. Yeah. Uh, in, in growing up in, in a largely black neighborhood in Houston, I was keenly aware of the struggles that communities of colors were facing. So I was always coming up with these stories that were just landing on my lap, and I got hooked. I and so after grad, I went to New York for graduate school at Columbia in writing. I, when I started a, an internship at the Associated Press, those were stories that I immediately gravitated toward. And over the years, it's something that I tried to perfect. It's something long before it became trendy yeah. to look at these communities. And as we face a reckoning uh, as a country, look at these stories and not only just about what's happening at the moment, but how these stories define us ourselves, mm-hmm. what's going on and what can we learn? Without a doubt. And I have to believe that, that you Coming from that background, you, you were also a validator too. Like to have your you go into those communities and have those conversations. I have to believe that there was a greater amount of trust for a reporter like yourself who has sort of that rich background and understanding, as opposed to someone who sort of just shows up on the scene and hopes to sort of understand um, what's happening, you know, in the in the communities. Yeah, a lot of these communities they want to see reporters that are reflective of them. Mm. They want to see people covering them who look like them. Of course. Uh, there's a lot of distrust. It goes back many years I bet. in a lot of these communities because, like as you mentioned, a lot of people just come fly by night. They helicopter in, mm. they make false assumptions, and then they leave. And then they may craft something that's full of inaccuracies. And that just fosters more distrust. So if you're from these communities and you do the work, you can build trust that way. You also have to do things and, and – 
learn the craft, like Gay Talese says, uh, the legendary reporter is just the part. So always dress uh, and don't appropriate anything. Be honest to yourself, but dress appropriately for a story mm-hmm. uh, when you enter it so that they feel you're not an outsider. You're not someone who is coming in, who is going to stereotype them as they would stereotype you. Right. That you ask questions and you remain curious mm-hmm. and that you always don't go in there with preconceived notions. I know how things work. I know the way of the world. I'm going there and you're going to tell me your small way of the world and I'm going to go back to my desk and say how wrong you are. No, you have to be open. You have to be open to be challenged. You have to be open that your curiosity may take you somewhere else that you weren't expecting. And you also have to be opening, open to the fact that you may be wrong about everything. Yeah. And when you get back, you may even have more questions than you do answers. That makes so much sense. And I, I think that it's um, it's reflective of really all really good journalism too, in that if we arrive on the scene and assume that we already have the story in our head, n- number one, we're not going to be able to adequately reflect what is actually happening. But also there's a real, um, there's a real disconnect. Um, and it's, it's unfair not only to those that you're reporting about, but also to those that you're reporting to. Exactly. So then how, um, so you arrived on the scene at, at Axios, uh, maybe, I guess it's almost going on two years. Is that right? Yeah, it's about a year and a few months, almost a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. Time is flying as we go. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what you're reporting on now. Well, Axios is the race and justice reporter. Mm-hmm. I write about race and policing and the justice uh, system, whether it's for the federal or statewide mm-hmm. or municipal, municipal, whatever trends that are happening nationally and look at the intersection of race and justice and what that means for us. Mm-hmm. Obviously after the death of George Floyd, we really were asking ourselves across the country, what have we done wrong with policing? What are we missing? There's this systemic racism that we have yet to address. Mm-hmm. We knew it was there, but we weren't having a conversation. We weren't talking about it. And the death of George Floyd opened the whole world of us and all of us start having a reckoning, not just in across the country, but in newsrooms too. We were looking at our newsrooms and saying, well, this is not reflective of the, these communities we cover. We have to, if we're going to call out police and the justice system, we also have to call up ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this is across every industry, whether it was the banking or mortgage lending or everything. We need to have uh, the workforce, we needed to have customer bases that were more reflective, mm-hmm. just just out of not just a sense of morality, but also made good business sense. You cannot function as an apartheid business um, model mm-hmm. and leave out others because you're leaving out a good section a section of the community of the world that should be engaged economically. Right. So when I came in, that those conversations were still happening, and uh, I I was on the race and ethnicity team at the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, but I came in was as a team of one and immediately I saw the interest of what Axios was trying to do is saying, we want your ideas, uh, yes. and we expect you to step up and give those, mm-hmm. us those ideas. Uh, and so that was a fun part where, where I were coming from a legacy company, you had more conversations about story ideas than you would have stories. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those took longer. That they needed to take, let you know, that needed to need to occur before you got a story. And here at Axios, it's like, give me a story there, great. Now go get on it. Right. 
And then you had the, the and then we had to come back with some very intense editing and asking questions, but the stories came out and they came out better. So I came in that environment and within a few months, we started Axios Latino, a newsletter focusing on um, the Latino community in the United States, but also Latin America. And it was mm-hmm. a partnership with Telemundo mm-hmm. that I was able to augment some of the work I, I was doing about race and ethnicity to talk about now the, the biggest community of color in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it was a, a twofold thing that happened almost immediately. And it's been gratifying ever since. I have to say over the course of the last, so this will be our fourth episode of Axios April. So I've had really had a great chance to meet your colleagues that are in New York couple of your colleagues that are here, um, colleague in Pennsylvania, folks that are really everywhere, but really sought after, like yourself, because of your sort of deep connection to the stories that you're covering, uh, whether it be, you know, someone who's come from the business space or someone who's come from um, subscription newsletter world, like people that really fundamentally understand um, what it is they're reporting about. And that, I think, has been very, very illustrative for me because uh, I think it really enriches the reporting that you guys are doing. And I love it that um, even in even in the newsletter, um, in everything that you put together, you know, we've talked about smart brevity and other um, episodes, but I love the fact that even if you've only got a few minutes, you can really get a sense of what it is you're reporting on. And then, you know, if you want to go deeper, then you certainly can do so. Um, I especially love that, that you have that relationship with Telemundo because, uh, because you are really doing what you can to not only reach, um, the English speech speaking or English reading, um, readers, you're also really sort of meeting people where they are and where they're going to be connecting on these stories in a way that is really meaningful. Yeah, and you know, when you write stories like this, usually what reporters usually would do is they would write a story and they would move on. One thing I, I was pleasantly surprised coming to Axios is that's only part of, that's only the beginning of the story. So you write a story, and if I was focusing on, say, something like on housing, we did a deep dive on housing and the problems of housing and discrimination exist. So we do that. Now we're looking and, and following up on that and talking about solutions. What else is going on? So on my part where I did housing, I was talking about, I mentioned how it was really difficult to find housing on indigenous lands or American Indian reservation, Native American reservation, uh, because how there's such a housing shortage, uh-huh. right? If you go to some place like the Navajo Nation or the Ogala Lakota and Pine Ridge, you're gonna, it's gonna be very difficult for you to find a place because it's federal housing, it's difficult to access, mm-hmm. all kinds of bureaucratic things. And then the housings that break down, it's so hard to fix. So what happens, a lot of these um, homes and people have multiple families living in them out of survival. So one thing we're looking at is, well, there's actually a program in, in, on the Lakota Nation where they're teaching folks financial literacy, how to fix your credit or prove your credit mm-hmm. to apply for loans, and then purchase a, a sustainable home that's environmentally friendly, not put in squares like homes that you and I have in a grid, but in circles in the traditional Lakota way. Right. To that sort of meet was them. really interesting. Yeah, it, it meets the needs of those communities. So and their culture. Those stories, yeah. And a culture, right. 
And then Axios is like, if you take that example of stories like, like that, mm-hmm. Axios is like, oh, good. Let's have an event. Can we invite somebody? Let's have a virtual event. We can talk more about it. So in addition to stories, we have these virtual events where we go on and talk to a newsmaker and talk to them for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about a, a particular issue. Actually, I watched, then, I watched the one that you did on health equity uh, and found it yeah. really, really very illustrative on that, that specific topic, too. So it, those, it's great that and, you do that. Those are, yeah, those are so rewarding. I, I enjoy those. Mm-hmm. And now with the pandemic um, subsiding, hopefully, we can return to in-person events where we can have these deep discussions in front of a live audience. Right. So it's no longer doing a story, let them publish, you move on to something else kind of a formula. It's a, it's a, it's a the, the totality of everything seems much more engaging. Mm-hmm. You're still roles of journalists. We're not activists. Right. We're not seeking to p- change a particular policy or we're not going to turn around and lobby members of Congress or various state houses. We are seek- basically putting the mirror in front of us and saying, here's all our beauty and all our works. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take this further. What, what does this image say to you? And what is your reaction? And then hold that view and then watch it change over time and record that. That's the beauty of what we're doing. And I love that um, there are many, many things we can point to that the pandemic was not helpful to. But a lot of what the pandemic really sort of helped us as a nation figure out is that we need to give people greater access to information, too, and not just um, news papers or online publications, but the ability to sit in on these conversations as they're happening, the ability to get access to um, the internet so that they can watch your conversation with a newsmaker. It's really, to me, that's been one of the positives that's come out of that is that it's given really people greater access to that kind of information as you continue to, to offer it and to share it. Yeah, it's much more in a format that is much more engaging than just going to social media and trying to have a conversation. But what you end up doing is trying to navigate trolls mm-hmm. or somebody trying to hook you and you're saying something inappropriate. And, and the conversation is usually dumbed down. We're not having an exchange of ideas. You're basically trying to find out who should you mute and block yeah. because you don't know if this person is actually real and okay. they have, yeah. Or, a, a question saying, Hey, look, I love the story, but I disagree with this premise. Those are always my, I always enjoy those because people are usually when they reach out to you through emails or discussions like that, they're genuinely curious saying, mm-hmm. help me understand something. I didn't know this, or I tend to disagree on that. What were you trying to say? Am I missing something? Those are great conversations because that's what we want. We, we tend to have lost that in media because the way that it has been structured in other outlets is you get people from opposing views and get them to shout at each other. Yeah. And then you try to instigate conversation on social media to drive more looks and all that. And what it's doing is dividing neighbor to neighbor. No kidding. Where 20 years ago, you could go to a little league park and you could, openly say you supported another political candidate with your neighbor and nobody cared. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do, you're the enemy. And this is what Robert Kennedy had warned right after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King is that we're entering a time where politics and civic engagement is my 
group of folks are here to dominate you and to subjugate you, mm-hmm. not into inter-civic engagement as fellow citizens. And that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, no question. And, and there's been a great conversation going on independent of our conversation here today, but just more broadly in that there is just this tremendous breakdown in um, in the discourse between one another. And it's been exacerbated by the availability of social platforms and other means where that people are just generally less kind to one another. Um, and that I think is not only in reflective in the work that you do, but also in the service areas. Um, I just was recently on travel and I realized there were, there were notes just about everywhere reminding patrons that they were low staffed and to be kind for, to those who had shown up. And so that alone, I think, um, and, and to add to that, there's been also some change in policy in several newsrooms where news reporters have been told that they don't necessarily have to have a social like a Twitter feed or if they don't want one, because folks like yourself, and and I don't know if it's necessarily to you, but folks who do the work that you do um, in lots of different fields, not just in, in this space are being attacked by these trolls in a way that is really detrimental, I think, to public discourse. Yeah, because social media can be a, um, a place that can really strike the nerves, Mm -hmm. right? It can really get you to question everything. But what's interesting is that you know, we did a piece, Mike Allen did this wonderful piece that got us to, to, to really think about it and just, just remind us that only 1% of our population is on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? It's not necessarily a real place. Yeah. yeah, it's a format, it's a plaza, but every town has a plaza, most towns in the United States. How many people actually go to it? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, you don't even go downtown anymore. And that's something you have to consider, that the space um, involves a certain demographic and some of that demographic doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. It's bots, trolls, are folks who don't engage in the, in the real life world and are positioning themselves with the picture of their dog or a bug or something. You don't know who you're talking to. Right. Um, you got to remind yourself that that's not real. Yeah. And what goes on on Twitter isn't necessarily the same as going on in the public opinion. Most people who are engaged do not spend most of their life, most of their day on their mobile devices, mm-hmm. not only taking pictures of their food, but telling you why a current policy is bad for the world. Sure. When most people didn't, you could even name the policy or didn't know the policy <laughs> existed. No doubt about it. Um, so, Russ, you've, uh, you've been at Axios for some time. You're covering these great issues. I mean, it, it wasn't, I'm not old. I mean, excuse me, I'm old enough to remember even before 2012 when the Republican National Committee was doing their autopsy on uh, politics and how they had had missed their conversation and they really wanted to figure out ways to talk to the Hispanic and the African-American community. There's there's been just this nonstop um, reflection on that. And then, of course, we have the entry of Donald Trump's administration, changes over, and the conversation really gets um, heated. Just a couple of weeks ago or days ago, you wrote a piece about how uh, there's a gigantic um, movement inside of um, your own state where Hispanics are running for Republican office. Yeah, here in New Mexico, where this is the state with the highest percentage of Hispanic residents Mm -hmm. in the country, right, almost 50 percent. The Republican Party here has its highest numbers of 
of Republican and Hispanic candidates running for state house seats. This mm-hmm. is in the lower chamber of the state house. And it's been a long effort by this the, the Republican Party here in New Mexico to recruit Hispanic candidates. Mm-hmm. It's different. The conversation has been different than elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Right after the autopsy you mentioned, Republicans were, were at a crossroads. Do we engage more? Some of our language doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But what happened with the election of Donald Trump, they dug in and dug in in some of the harsh language that we saw in the 1990s by former governor Pete Wilson, uh, California governor Pete Wilson, uh-huh. who really dug in on anti-immigrant rhetoric, yeah. a lot of nationalist, somewhat racist rhetoric, mm-hmm. would argue, that um, really got out the base of white resentment, but it helped in the short term, but hurt California in the long term, because now California is the bluest of blue. Mm-hmm. They did something in California then that groups like LULAC and the Southwest Voter Registration Project couldn't do, and that was get Latinos to register to vote mm-hmm. out of fear. And that flipped that state from a purple state to a solidly blue state. Interesting. That didn't happen in Texas. It didn't necessarily happen in New Mexico. Yeah. In New Mexico, the Republicans here, for the most part, were very engaging. They did not use that rhetoric. And it happens, to, it happens a little bit to do with the culture of New Mexico, where yes, we stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, but right after that, the Pledge of Allegiance is followed with it in Spanish. Uh-huh. So there's no, there's no um, resentment to Hispanic culture, Latino culture here, because it's so ingrained. And sure. then Latinos can turn around and say, I have, I have a right to be a Republican or conservative, mm-hmm. um, because you've taken out this discussion about race. And what the belief was, was maybe the rest of the nation will become more like New Mexico Republicans, not shying away from their conservative beliefs about limited government or social issues, but approach it differently. Sure. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you lie, they, there is a governor-toral uh, election coming up, and some of the candidates running on the Republican in the Republican primary are actually using some of the anti-immigrant language that oh, other no. Republicans are using mm-hmm. to get out of the primary. Oh. And what a lot of political observers and people I've talked to say, that may help you in the primary, but it's going to hurt you in the general election. Mm-hmm. It's Even if you have a Democratic incumbent who is vulnerable, Democrats will be able to use that and say, no, 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 this is these are outsiders trying to change our way of life. Let's not... Let's not bring that dog and pony show here. Yeah. This is not our this is not our circus. Yeah. We do things differently. You can take that back to whatever state you, you brought that from. And it's something we've seen over and over again. It's the cycle that where sort of national language sort of spills into the states. And sooner or later the states realize that that the language that's coming out of Washington, DC doesn't necessarily reflect our politics and our way of life. So I'm hopeful that 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 trend is one that we will see um, expand into other states. It's just, it to me feels like a very volatile time, um, especially in the space that you're covering. But if I'm not mistaken, you're also writing a book, a historical book about JFK and Latinos. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, this is something that um, that's really personal for me. I grew up in a family who um, were active in the Mexican-American civil rights movement. I had an uncle who was a World War II veteran, Mm -hmm. came back, got involved in civil rights. Um, My uncle Ernest, as we call him, 
um, was involved in LULAC, the largest mm -hmm. Latino civil rights group at the time, 1950s and 60s. And one thing he did was organize a gala for President Kennedy, who was visiting Texas in his third year in office, or second year in office. Mm -hmm. um, and he was coming to Houston because he was in trouble with Texas and was up for re-election. So it was his third year, 1963. And he came to Houston and spoke at a LULAC function, which was a group of these Latino civil rights leaders. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time a sitting president had ever acknowledged um, the Latino vote. Wow. Or what's important, or this new population. Sure. And in the 1960s, the race was so close between President Kennedy and Vice President Nixon that Latinos or Mexican Americans helped swing the election for the first time in U.S. history. They, the first time they made their presence known and gave John F. Kennedy um, his small victory in places okay, like then. Texas and Illinois. Huh. So when he came to Houston at this moment, it was a thank you and also an effort to mobilize. And not only did President Kennedy speak at this night, but Jackie Kennedy spoke, and she spoke in Spanish. Oh, wow. And it's hard to really paint this image of a group of people that have been ignored throughout American history, finally getting acknowledged by a president and his wife speaking in Spanish. Mm -hmm. There was this enormous excitement in this night in Houston. And so in the book, I'm going to talk about what what had to take place for this night to occur. And then I'm going to talk about the next day the president goes to Dallas mm. and is killed. Wow. And that night that happened in Houston, now today is largely forgotten because of the events the next day. Overshadowed. That overshadowed everything. Wow. And so many of these folks that I talked to were, were they were older. They were up in age. Many of them have since passed away. Mm -hmm. So I sat down and talked to them about what happened to their lives that helped build that momentous night and then what happened afterwards. And many of them, to them, that was a highlight of their careers, their civil oh, rights careers. I imagine, because, and, I mean, that's something that's sort of like a crown jewel in, in, the, in the work that they were doing. It's remarkable. Right, right. And, and then what haunts them for the rest of their life? Like some felt they were responsible that if they had convinced him to stay just a little longer, he may have been late to Fort Worth or oh. may not have gotten on Dallas. or maybe the, the lateness would have stalled the car a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. They were hit with this doubt that they would live with for the rest of their lives. Wow. Well, I can't wait to read it. So keep us well, posted. <laughs> it's, I mean, and, it. and it goes and it goes back to the the point that you made very early on in our conversation about meeting people where they are. Right, the fact that the first lady comes to Dallas, excuse me, comes to Houston and talks in the native language, the language of the people that she's speaking with, um, really meeting people there in in a place that that gives them like a tremendous amount of satisfaction in the work that they're doing, um, and also some some validation. Um, knowing that that they're really realized, um, but but difficult to hear that they would sort of take that as as sort of a some sort of um, you know guilt or blame for for what had happened the following day. Well, anyway, 
that sounds like a tremendous project. And I wish you all the best with that, uh, knowing there's so much that goes into writing a book and also breaking news and doing all the good work that you do at Axios. Uh, Russ, I have two last questions before I let you go today back to the busy work that you're doing. Uh, number one, uh, what is it that keeps you busy when you're not reporting? Well, I have two young daughters. Uh, one is eight and one is five. Mm. Uh, I have a wife who was the te- the 2020 teacher of the year in the state of New Mexico. Oh, who congrats. was very active in education. Yeah, so uh, you have to keep them, especially the two little ones, very busy and engaged. So we're constantly taking them to the museums here, yeah. hiking during the pandemic, enjoying nature. Um, unplug try to unplug the best you can digitally mm-hmm. and not and, and not spend so much time as i used to on social media just clicking and seeing what the news is because sometimes I, I don't need to know i can find out later yep. i'm always hooked in my job but Every... reading and it, yeah <laughs> is in case, like, as you know right? yeah i do uh, yeah because if you don't unplug you'll become consumed and you can become cynical because there's so much bad news um it's hard for you to put in perspective. And again, you have to look up from your phone. It's like, wait a minute, that was not real. Mm-hmm. What real is outside is walking in these hiking trails and looking at the road runners who are jogging in front of me. Yeah. Or the coyote in the distance or something, something outside that is, well, they're not on digital. <laughs> the, the road runner doesn't have a Twitter account. <laughs> Makes us it a little envious matter. about the way that they live their lives. Very instinctual, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. He's like, you're the one giving, putting all your attention to that, little metal of piece of wire and an internet Wi-Fi where I'm out here enjoying life. Oh, look, I just ate all your food. <laughs> so <laughs> put that in perspective. Good perspective. Yes, yes, yes. And then, so my final question always, Russ, is uh, I, I'd love a nomination for a future episode. Who would you recommend for a future show? You know, I, for a future show, if you're looking at, are you thinking about someone at Axios or someone outside? Anyone. doesn't have to be Axios. You know, there's some people I think I would love to hear um, a deep conversation about how their lives work, other reporters. Um, a good friend of mine at the LA Times, Gustavo Ariano, who is a columnist, um, interesting guy who started off in alternate news weeklies and now has this beautiful column where he writes about life in California. He's the product of, uh, uh, his father was an undocumented immigrant who came into the country in the back in the trunk of a Chevy. Oh, wow. And now his dad rails against immigrants. (laughs) (laughs) So Gustavo is someone who captures a lot of these contradictions, not only of Latinos, but, but of us. Sure. And he will use his voice to go highlight the world of Asian Americans uh, in California uh-huh. or highlight other conflicts that we may have forgotten in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Put things in perspective. He's a great, I would love to have a deep conversation, hear a deep conversation with him. Okay. And there's also the, the well known cartoonist, the Pulitzer finalist out of Los Angeles, Lalo Alcaraz, who has been doing editorial cartoons for a long time and can really turn a sad situation into humor. He can find humor in everything. Wow. Sometimes he can't, and his cartoons are reflective of the pain of the moment. Mm -hmm. 
but often he, he can turn an image, turn it on his head, and you cannot stop looking at it and you cannot stop laughing. Wow. And what he's basically doing is, hey, don't take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. I don't take myself too seriously. We have to laugh. Yes, anger is a normal part of human behavior. It's a human emotion, but so is laughter. And when everybody's laughing together, we find that we all have kinship with each other. Mm-hmm. And we're minded why we're here on this place to begin with. And I think talking to him, even where he comes from, his political perspective, he then will say humor can conquer all. All you have to do is open your mind, yeah. look at something, and allow yourself to chuckle. Boy, that would be either either or um, Gustavo or Lalo. I have put them on my list, and I will tell them that you sent me their way. And I am so, so grateful for your time today, Russell. I wish you all the best. I'll be following closely and keeping an eye out for that great book. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I appreciate the time. It's been an honor. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.